Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now, here's our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there, and welcome back. This is our Going Deeper series this week, where we're going to be discussing Shiloh, the tabernacle, and the Ark of the Covenant that was there for so many years. And there are some really exciting archaeological digs and finds that have been taking place in recent years. And we are so excited to have with us today Dr. Scott Stripling, who has been the director of the excavations at Shiloh. So let me tell you just a little bit about him uh, before we get started. Um, in addition to being the director of excavations for the Association for the sorry, the Associates for Biblical Research at Ancient Shiloh, he also serves as the provost and director of the Archaeology Institute at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. And Dr. Stripling did his graduate studies at the University of Texas, the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, and at Veritas International University. And he began volunteering on archaeological excavations in the early 2000s, which ultimately led to him directing excavations. And so he served as the supervisor of the Temple Mount Sifting Project, which we will probably have him on another show later on that we can just talk about the Temple Mount findings. Um, he also was field supervisor at Tel El Haman, which is one of the candidate sites for the city of Sodom. And uh, then he was director of excavations at Kerbet El Makatir, which um, he linked as the um, site of AI in Joshua and um, also in Ephraim of John 11. So um, as director of excavations at Tel uh, Shiloh, he has uh, led the first three seasons of excavations there and they've been put on hold due to Corona. I know he's anxious to get back. Uh, in the meantime, he has a new book that's hot off the press about the Exodus. It's called The Five Views of the Exodus. And so uh, we're going to link to that in our show notes for you. After you've heard Dr. Stripling, I'm sure you'd like to read uh, some of his writings. He's published widely in peer-reviewed journals and is a popular speaker uh, and teacher around the world. And his passion is connecting the material culture of the Holy Land with the biblical text. And so, Dr. Strickling, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Susan, for that kind introduction. It's great to be with you. Yes, well, I know you've been involved in Christian ministry and church leadership and teaching in seminaries, and I know that your faith is important to you and your strong belief in the Bible. So I want you to first just share with our audience how you bring your belief in the Bible to the field of archaeology and how that might be different from others in the field and, you know, what that difference means for you. Uh, well, that's a great question. I do not bifurcate my belief system 
from how I practice in the field because we're dealing with the land of the Bible. And so the Bible is our go-to source for that part of the world. And take Shiloh, for example, it's not mentioned in the Mesopotamian literature or the Egyptian literature or anywhere else except the Bible. And so I presuppositionally take the Bible as a reliable historical document. And that, of course, would be different from what I would say the majority of archaeologists would do. Even if they use the Bible, they're probably not taking it as being historically reliable in the same sense that we would take other secular literature. I do, and I have found a great synchronism between the material culture and the biblical text, and I'm always eager to talk about that. Well, we, um, we have talked a lot in our first few weeks of our Walk Through the Bible series about some of the archaeological evidence that may, may support the biblical narrative, but yet there are so many in the, in the world of archaeology and the scholars that will say, no, there's no proof that any of that happened. And so uh, we're helping them to understand it's not that the archaeology isn't there or certain findings. It's how it's interpreted, and it's also how it's dated. And so as we have progressed in our reading, we're now up to Judges and First Samuel, and we're reading about Shiloh. And so it's a little bit more, um, more advanced, and archaeology is a little bit easier, I think, to date and um, to understand. So that's a great segue to our, our real subject today, which is Shiloh. And I'll just explain for our audience. In English, we pronounce it Shiloh. In Hebrew, it is Shiloh or Shiloh. And so uh, we may go back and forth in our pronunciation, but it is the city of Shiloh. And uh, what you've uncovered there about the uh, existence of the tabernacle, and which also housed the Ark of the Covenant, is what we're really interested in hearing about. So please, first, would you remind our listeners about the biblical history of Shiloh? What took place there according to the Bible? Absolutely. Um, and first, let me echo what you said. The chronology is the key, because if we're looking in the wrong time, or the wrong place, then we're going to find the wrong stuff. And so sometimes you'll hear people say that archaeology contradicts the Bible. Well, they're two centuries off. You're looking in the wrong layer, what we would call the wrong stratum. And so that is really, really important. But um, what we are doing at Shiloh is a multi-year excavation on the northern slope. And it's sort of like draining the water in a bathtub where we're starting at the top where we have early Islamic material. And then we go through that down through the Byzantine material, uh, down into the early Roman material, which would be time of Jesus, New Testament. And then into the late Hellenistic period, what we might call intertestamental period. And then down into the Iron Age II, the period of the divided kingdom, the period of the, the prophet Ahijah at, at Shiloh, and then finally down into Iron I, what we would call the period of the tabernacle, and uh, LB II, late bronze II, which is when the period of the tabernacle first started at Shiloh, then into the pre-Israelite stratum. So we go down, identifying the layers as we go, carefully recording the material culture that we're uncovering, and we're uncovering some really, really interesting things. Well, tell us, what have you discovered from that well, time <laughs> period when the, when the tabernacle was there? Well, we are the third major expedition to Shiloh. So the Danish worked for four seasons in the 1920s there, I mean, sort of primitive by our standards today, but generally speaking for the 
what they had at the time. They did a good job. The Israelis, Bar-Ilan University, did a dig in the 1980s for four seasons, but still less than 5% of the site was, was excavated, so there was a lot of conjecture, and we felt a lot of questions that needed to be answered, and so we launched a new excavation in 2017. We completed three years. We were not able to dig last summer, unfortunately, but we have high hopes of being back in the field uh, this summer. So what have we found in, in our first three seasons that would create a verisimilitude, a, a linkage between the material culture and the biblical text? Uh, we have, a, uh, I believe, evidence of a sacrificial system that's operating there when the Bible says that the Israelites were there. We get a change in material culture. So, for example, we have 4% pig bone in the earlier stratum, stratum 8 and stratum 7, and then once we get into the Israelite stratum, it drops to 1%. We see the, the pottery change. We begin to find things like ceramic palm granites, which is a motif of the tabernacle. If you remember, the high priest had uh, bells and palm granites alternating on his, uh, the hem of his garment. Um, we have found two of those so far. Um, demolished altar horns, um, destruction matrix, a bone deposit that what we would call a favisa, with bones only from the biblical sacrificial system in it, full of late bronze II pottery from the per initial period of the tabernacle at Shiloh as well, and then a series of storage rooms that appear, uh, appear to encircle the site with dozens and dozens of massive pithoi or storage jars, the classic Israelite uh, collared rim storage jar. And then finally, we are unearthing a monumental building from the Iron One, which would be the time of Eli and Samuel and Hannah and so forth, and um, it orients to the east-west, and we don't yet know exactly uh, what it was, but we're very interested to finish excavating this building. Okay, so let me um, kind of dissect <laughs> what you just said for our audience. Okay. So the city of Shiloh was there, of course, before the Israelites took it over. And it was it an Amorite city, is that right? Yes. And the Amorite period is considered, is that New Bronze? Uh, no, so the the it begin, would begin in middle bronze and then middle continue bronze. into the into the late bronze. Late so, bronze, so. yes. Okay. Right, right. So for our readers, because we're not archaeologists, so we don't always know these terminology. The Bronze Age was when uh, weapons and and cutlery stuff was made out of bronze, and so it's called the Bronze Age. And there was the early, middle, and late bronze. And then um, weaponry, they learned how to melt iron and uh, combine it with other things to make it strong. And so that became the predominant uh, method of making weapons. So it's called the Iron Age. And uh, you always jump in and correct me if I get any of that wrong. No, but, you're doing great. Uh, you're great. So the Israelite period for Shiloh began in late bronze and went into Iron Age. Is that right? That's right. Uh, 1400 would be the arrival of Joshua and the Israelites, give or take a year. Um, and that's important because if, you, if you're in the wrong century, then you know, you're going to appear to not have evidence that coincides with the Bible. And uh, I appreciate the plug for the new book, Five Views on the Exodus. And in chapter one, folks can read all about the reasoning of why we would place Joshua and the Israelites at Shiloh uh, at the end of what we would call the Late Bronze One period. Late bronze. Okay, great. All right, I just wanted to explain that. And um, so the 
The remains of, you said, a sacrificial system, uh, indications of that. Let's start with the storage, the storage room and the storage jars, because uh, tell us how they, why they are all these storage jars. What did that mean to you? Well, first of all, there's no other site in Israel that has storage rooms surrounding the perimeter. Uh, folks who are familiar with Israel can picture maybe a site like Beersheba in the south in the Negev that has four-room houses encircling the site. But what we have here, only at Shiloh, are storage rooms. And, of course, that's a great example of verisimilitude because that, what, that's what you would expect. People like Hannah and Elkanah came to Shiloh. They paid their tithe as they were commanded, and they couldn't go to tabernacle.org and make a secure online donation or write a check or anything like that. They brought commodity. And so what would we expect to find at a place where many, many people are bringing their agricultural tithe? Storage rooms. And inside those storage rooms, we have these uh, collard rooms jars and lots of them so we're in the process of restoring all of these jars and they're talking to us you know just like jesus said the stones would cry out was an archaeologist you know these artifacts susan when they come out of the ground they're mute they have to be interpreted and they're interpreted through life experience through training and so they're talking to us and and after three seasons i think we've now got a a good picture of what was happening in antiquity at biblical shiloh Mm. And tell us a little bit more about the pomegranate that you found. Okay, the ceramic pomegranate was just about uh, two inches in size. It has a calyx at the bottom where it's beginning to flower. And of the seven fruits that the Israelites were promised when they came into the land, sacred fruits, if you will, uh, it was only the pomegranate that went into the presence of God on the hem of the high priest's garments. Later in Solomon's temple, 200 pomegranates adorned Solomon's temple. So I think it had to do with the pomegranate representing God's abundance, his fecundity, the that that idea that uh, exponential growth is is possible with all these seeds within a pomegranate. Uh, so it's a motif of the tabernacle. They have been found in Israel only at Levitical sites, either priestly or Levitical sites, like Yoknam, for example. And so what do we begin to find? Ceramic pomegranates. So again, sort of inductively, you've got storage rooms, you've got pomegranates, and we begin to layer upon layer, pick, piece together what life was like at that time. So it was a little like a two-inch ceramic pomegranate that you believe was on the hem of the priestly garment. Well, I, I can't say that, that this hung from Eli's robe, for example. I can just right. tell you that the Bible says that there were pomegranates depicted. Uh, either It was a combination bell pomegranate or a pomegranate separately. But those are the two things on the hems of the priest's garments. And what we are finding are pomegranates. I mean, ours may have hung from a cult stand or something like that. So I can't say that with certainty, but it's possible. I do have a replica here if you'd like to see it. Um, so this is um, a replica of the pomegranate. This is, you know, a baby pomegranate. You can see the, where it would hang there. And then here's the calyx on the bottom where it opens up. And uh, the typical pomegranate has 613 seeds, uh, just like the commandments in the Hebrew Bible. Wow. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I've tried to count them a number of times, but I always lose count. But that's what the experts say is that there are 613 seeds. Yes. And so these pomegranates had 613 seeds in them. And then, of course, in the corners of the garments were tassels, which were to be a reminder also of the 613 
commandments. So, um, wow, that is really fascinating. Um, you also mentioned the horn, uh, a broken horn of an altar. Could you just explain to us what is a horn of an altar? <laughs> what is okay. it? What was it for? What does it look like? You know, as a beginning Bible reader, you start reading all these strange things like he grabbed hold of the horns of the altar and you're picturing yes. like animal horns. Okay, <laughs> exactly. so, so they could not use metal tools on the sacred altar. So they had to find stones that naturally had a curvature toward them like a horn. And then those would be used as the corners of an altar. And so, you know, in the cities of refuge, for example, somebody could find refuge by grabbing hold of the horns of the altar. But normally they were used to bind the sacrifice. And um, that, that sacrifice, Susan, I think, answers, you know, we're looking at Passover right around the corner. And that answers, I think, the most basic of all human questions like, how do we, messed up as we are, how do we connect with a perfect and holy God? And it was through the sacrificial system that they were able to do that. I mean, Leviticus uh, 11 clearly says, without the shedding of blood, there, I'm sorry, Leviticus 17, 11 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so they needed to repair their relationships vertically with God and horizontally with each other, just like we do. And the sacrificial system enabled them to do that. And so the, the altar would be a big stone slab. Yeah, multiple stones, okay, that are pieced, kind of interlocked and worked together. And then the corner pieces would be horns that would come up. And what we found were three of them. In a, in a, one was in wow. secondary usage. It had been reused. And then another was just a couple of feet away. And then the third one was in a destruction matrix sealed under a plastered floor. And we were able to carbon date it and with the pottery date it to about 1075 BC, which is wow. exactly the time of the Philistine destruction of Shiloh. Now, this is really exciting where archaeology doesn't change the biblical text, it illuminates the biblical text. Because the Bible doesn't come right out in 1 Samuel and tell you that the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, but it implies it. And then Psalm 78 strongly implies a destruction of Shiloh, but it doesn't explicitly state it. So what we're able to do in archaeology is say, okay, it implies it, and now we have evidence of that destruction and of a demolished altar in that matrix. Okay, very interesting. Well, um, you also mentioned something that I find so exciting, and that's bones. Who would think that bones are exciting, right? But uh, you said that in the pre-Israelite part of the findings, you found pig bones. But in the Israelite period, uh, your archaeology didn't have any, which, of course, just corroborates that it was an Israelite city, a place of worship where they kept it pure, and they didn't have pigs there. Right. Now we have about less than 1% pig bones. It's a tiny amount, but that could be contamination from the other stratum and, you know, or a wild hog. It's hard, hard to know, but uh, there is a clear difference. Now in that, in our bone deposit from the late bronze two period, our, our favisa in our area D, um, that appears to be where they're dumping the bones after the sacrifice right over the the city wall and it accumulates over a couple of centuries so it's a lot of bone there with pottery intermixed as if they're libations drink offerings and then the vessel itself is being broken or or offered now here's where the bible reader has an advantage 
what what we found because we test every bone you know we, we excavate thousands a year and then we have a zoo archaeologist at tel aviv university that'll do a complete analysis of these bones for us each year we found that there's a disproportionate percentage of those bones from the right side of the animal to the left side of the animal so something like 60 to 65 percent are from the right side and 30 35 percent from the left side now statistically that's impossible and so, you know, what does one do when one is not a Bible reader? You just note it, but you have no interpretation. As a Bible reader, your mind immediately goes to Leviticus chapter 7, unless you slept through Leviticus. That um, You go to Leviticus 7 and you read that the right side of the animal is the priest's portion. Ah, now you begin to connect the dots of what was happening at ancient Shiloh. Wow, and so you've discovered that over 60% of the bones were from the right side of the animal. In, in the bone deposit, yes. So all these indications, it's not like you have actually found anything from the tabernacle itself, but a lot of indications that this is where it was, this is where there was a sacrificial system, this is where there was worship, there were priests with hems and with garments, and, um, and so... How and you've only excavated a very very small part of the city, is that right? Right. We've been there three seasons, and of course our technology is far more advanced than it was <clears throat> in the previous excavations. And we're blessed to have a large excavation team. Any of your listeners would be very welcome to join us. They can just go to digshiloh.org to get the details. But um, we, yeah, we've done in our three seasons maybe three percent of the site that we've excavated so far. So we still have a lot of answers that are underground. Who knows what is there? And uh, I, I read that your excavation, I think, for two years in a row, was the largest excavation taking place in Israel um, at the time. And I, I know it's, it's, it would take a long time to, and a lot of money to excavate the whole site, but. Um, I know you're you're you can't wait to get back there. Um, well, we take Jeremiah seven twelve very uh, seriously. Jeremiah seven twelve says, "Go now to Shiloh." <laughs> and uh, Doctor Stripling, you alluded to the new technology. Uh, tell us some of the new things that you've got that are helping and aiding archaeology today. Well, super exciting. We uh, have an infield lab that we have infrared and ultraviolet lighting in the field. So we built a little laboratory so we can examine every sherd of pottery and every object before we discard it. In other words, we have to make a decision what we're going to save for further scientific study and what we're not. And so before, as part of that decision-making process, we examine it under this lighting to make sure we're not missing something that the naked eye can't, can't see. Um, we fly drones, you know, morning, afternoon, and evening. So we have all these thousands of shots that we're able to compress, uh, which is kind of funny because only six or seven years ago when we first flew a drone, everyone stopped working and got their cameras out to take a picture of this drone. And now it's like second nature. Uh, the, the drones can take uh, spot-on photos. We hover it right over each archaeological square and they, that picture is better than we can draw it. So, I mean, we don't even have our supervisors drawing the squares anymore because we take a perfect photo every day. And then we update that in the iPad. So my supervisors are all entering data in their iPads. 
and that's all then coming to my computer so that I'm getting data, making real-time decisions or data-driven decisions in the field. And that's very different from what we had in the past where archaeologists had a hunch, you know, about something. I do get hunches, but I try to back them up with data-driven decisions. And uh, probably the most important technology is our uh, wet sifting. We have invested in a massive washing station or a wet sifting station, and we are the first excavation to whole, wholesale wash and wet sift everything that we dig. So after it's been dug, then after it's been dry sifted to check to make sure that things weren't missed, then we have another protocol where we tag it properly, take it down to our wash station and wash it. And Susan, what we're finding is revolutionary. Um, for every one scarab that we used to find, we're now finding four and a half. And we verified this. We went back to old dump piles from the 1980s, and we found more in their dump piles than they found in their excavation. So sadly, excavations in the past have been throwing away the majority of the evidence. And not intentionally, of course, but uh, we're now trying to share this technology with everyone and to let them know we, we can't keep throwing away the evidence. And if somebody tells you, well, we excavated such and such a place and we didn't find evidence that corroborated the Bible, well, I guess not when we're throwing away the evidence in our, in our dump piles. So uh, this is an exciting new season that we're in. Well, it is. And, um, you know... I, I know that when I was studying about Shiloh, I was really surprised to see how long the tabernacle was there at Shiloh. I mean, this was a, a central place of worship for how many years? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, there's a little confusion about that. The Bible uh, gives us a, a little over three centuries, which is a long time. So while Jerusalem is still a pagan city, Shiloh is the center of Israelite life and worship. Um, the Seder Olam tells us, and that's a 2nd century uh, AD document, tells us that the tabernacle was at Shiloh for 369 years. And that's the date that you'll often hear used. That doesn't really synchronize with the internal biblical data. So I just tend to say that it was there for over three centuries, but it would be closer to 300 than 369. Well, that's still a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as an American, that's, yeah, that's longer than our history. Exactly. And when we say the tabernacle was there, was the Ark of the Covenant there that whole time in the tabernacle? Yes, and that's what's so exciting is that the presence of God was there. God said in Jeremiah seven twelve, that's where I caused my name to dwell. Um, I mean, that's where God lived. Remember God speaking to Samuel <laughs> from the Holy of Holies. And um, it's just incredible. Yeah, this is where the Ark of the Covenant rested and where God's presence dwelt. And, um, you know, the research that we're doing on that is just really, really phenomenal. Um, I filmed a new series with History Channel two or three months ago called Secrets of the Lost Ark, I think was the title. It'll come out in September or October this fall. Um, and, you know, we'll get into great depth on the Ark of the Covenant at Shiloh. But uh, suffice it to say that when, when I'm working there, I don't really lose the sense of awe. You know, they're long hours and lots of lots of work and responsibility. But to me, there's really a sense of awe that uh, we're dealing with wholly important things and we're dealing with them scientifically and academically. And I happen to be of the belief that you can do both simultaneously. Well, I can't imagine what it's like for you to, to actually stand there or sit there on the dust at Shiloh and to close your eyes and picture 
all of that history, all that biblical history, all the yeah, the yeah. worship, the priests, the, the everything, and to think that you are sitting right there and that you are in charge of uncovering yeah. the yeah, evidence and what's left it's over. Awesome. It's wow. Awesome. Just when when you're reminding me right now, I'm getting goosebumps. I mean, it is an awesome privilege and responsibility. And I often think about Psalm 102, 14. O Zion, blessed are those who love your dust and cherish your stones. And uh, so the dust, well, it may bother a lot of people. Uh, To me, I like it in my eyes and my nose and my ears and, you know, ingesting it. And that's how you really get to know Eretz Israel, the land of the Bible. Uh, Walking, it's great and traveling, it's great. But come dig with us and let it become one with you, and uh, you'll really have a new perspective then. Mm. Well, Dr. Stripling, I want to thank you, first of all, for your work, because you are helping to uncover the proof of our biblical text, and that means that this book is accurate, we can base our faith on it, we can base our lives on it, and the God that is behind it. And so I want to thank you uh, for your work, and I want to thank you for giving of your time today to speak to us. We're going to link in the show notes just right down below uh, to Dr. Stripling's book. And also he mentioned how you or maybe uh, someone in your family could sign up to go on the archeological dig at digshiloh.org. And we can't wait to see the History Channel program on Secrets of the Lost Ark. That sounds uh, intriguing, but thank you for your time today. And we look forward to having you back again, where we can discuss some of the other exciting finds that are taking place today in the land of the Bible. So thank you so much, Dr. Stripling. Thank you, Susan. And I appreciate the good work that your organization is doing. Shalom. Shalom, shalom, and thank you everybody for joining us today. Uh, Take advantage of the resources and the show notes below, and we'll see you back here in just a few days for our next Walk Through the Bible uh, episode. So see you then, and until then, God bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA, all rights reserved.